Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. It strikes me that the government is caught in a bit of a doom loop at the moment. It's not really a plan. And they rushed right into it. And then they created this fiscal hole. There was a certain amount of political tactlessness about that mini budget. We need to calm down, get our house in order and show to the world that we are a stable country and a rational country. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with me, Liam Halligan, and ordinarily Alison Pearson, but Alison's still on her well-earned fortnight's break. She's getting set for the Planet Normal live event on Wednesday, October the 19th, to which you're invited. More on that later. But for this week, I'm delighted to welcome back someone who's fast becoming an honorary citizen of Planet Normal, Telegraph columnist Nick Timothy. Nick, it's great to have you with us once again. Gosh, I am honoured. Thank you. It's lovely to be back. Now, as I said last week, Nick doesn't only write in The Telegraph each Monday. He was also once Joint Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Theresa May. So he's seen the workings of government, the Conservative Party and power very much from the inside. And crikey, do we need an experienced guide these days because we're around two score days into this trust administration, little more than a month, and the political and financial landscape has been completely upended. As we record this episode of Planet Normal, Nick, the Bank of England has launched its third intervention, propping up the gilts market, that is, the market for government debt. Borrowing costs on that market are now 4.5%, roughly, up from 3.5% before Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget of the 23rd of September. The papers are full of headlines, not about the government's stellar going-for-growth strategy, but telling of financial woe. In your latest Telegraph column, Nick, you write fondly about how you joined the Conservative Party as a teenager in the aftermath of Tony Blair's 1997 landslide, an election victory that cast the Tories out of power for more than a decade. Now you're saying today's Tory administration is acting recklessly. They're drunk on their own ideology, you write, egged on by libertarian think tank cheerleaders, unwilling to listen to anybody casting a doubt on their plans. Now, you weigh your words carefully, Nick, and few people are as well versed in politics and policy making as you. So if the government is reckless and drunk on their own ideology, is the Labour Party right to claim this is a crisis made in Downing Street? Well, I think it's obviously a bit more complicated than that. We are operating in a global environment and policymaking coming out of the Fed in America is relevant to policy that is made here. And it is the case that after a long period of really loose monetary policy with super low interest rates and quantitative easing pumping money into the economy, that we're now entering a period of monetary tightening. And that would have happened anyway. But I don't think that quite lets off the PM and the Chancellor because 
I think that context means that they should have been more cautious than they were. And instead, they attacked institutions. They sort of gave warnings that they didn't think very much of orthodoxy, gave all these kinds of hints that they weren't really too fussed about fiscal conservatism and credibility. And then they did the mini budget, which created a fiscal hole. They created a structural deficit in order to afford the tax cuts they promised. And that context, followed by those actions, I think, is what's caused the serious turbulence, which have consequences for people's lives since. I think that's very fair. I think if you look at graphs of composite mortgage rates, the average mortgage rate, it's two-year fix or five-year fix or whatever it is. Back in January 2022, those were down at 2.5 or 3%. They're now up at 6%, but it's been a pretty gradual increase throughout recent months, Nick, as you rightly say, as the global interest rate cycle has swung as the Federal Reserve in the US has started raising interest rates, as the Bank of England has started belatedly raising interest rates. There has been a bit of a surge in the last few weeks in the aftermath of that mini budget. And I completely agree with you. And we discussed it last week. And indeed, Alison and I have discussed it in the past as well. There was a certain amount of political tactlessness about that mini budget, both in terms of lowering the top rate of tax for just 2% of earners in the middle of a cost of living crisis, but also biffing away some of the normal institutional struts and pillars like the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, almost with relish. It strikes me that as they went into power, Liz Truss, who coveted the job for a long time, she wore her ambition very much on her sleeve. Nothing wrong with that in politics. I like determined people But do you think they were a bit hasty, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, when they entered Downing Street? A bit too quick to start relaying the tracks of the train set the way they wanted? A bit too quick to get rid of senior figures who, over previous years, they had felt were sticks in the mud? Well, I think they were really hasty. And it's not like all the decisions they made were wrong. And it's not like all the complaints they had about the way things had been working were misplaced. I mean, I, you know, I share some of the frustrations with the orthodoxy of the Treasury or the way the remit for the Bank of England has worked. But there wasn't really, this is what I find quite baffling, there wasn't really any need to just rush into that budget. They had a pressing need to do something about energy prices, which they had already done. And then they could have waited until the normal time for a budget, maybe sort of November time, in which and that time would have allowed them to go through the proper processes. It would have allowed them to publish a proper fiscal plan. It would have allowed them to publish maybe a more detailed growth plan. I mean, everyone's talking about the growth plan like it's a really important thing. But if you look at it, I mean, it's literally just a few paragraphs on we want more immigration or well, you know, we want to build more houses. It's not really a plan. And they rushed right into it. And then and then they created this fiscal hole. And I don't really know how they're going to get out of it because they need to fill that hole. And they're not going to be able to do that just by cutting public spending in the way that some have hinted, not least because Conservative MPs aren't going to vote for some of the cuts, but also because actually the size of the cuts that would be necessary are absolutely enormous. I just I don't think it's actually practically possible. And they're not really going to be able to do it by 
increasing lots of taxes or reversing the tax cuts that they've announced without just utterly killing themselves politically. So I think they're in a real mess. We're all wise in retrospect, of course, but I think you're right. They should have, in retrospect, just concentrated on the energy price cap, delivering that. They could easily have argued, and I argued at the time, we don't know how much the energy price cap is going to cost, and we don't. It's an open-ended commitment. If you're going to deliver energy to millions of firms and households at a particular unit price, which is what the government has pledged to do, faced with a vacillating wholesale gas price, you don't know how much the government is going to have to pay to buy the wholesale gas, uh, subsidise the purchase of wholesale gas by the energy companies to then deliver it at a fixed unit price. So they could have said, let's see how the wholesale gas price plays out through October, November. Let's see how cold the winter is, frankly. Then we'll have much more knowledge. We'll have our arms around the shape of where we are in terms of fiscal policy, because we'll know if that energy price cap has cost tens of billions or indeed hundreds of billions. And so I think they had every excuse. I put it to you, though, Nick, that the reason they felt compelled to do stuff, as well as the energy price cap, was because that infernal Tory leadership context took so long. It took like two months from early July to early September after Boris was deposed as Conservative leader until almost the autumn. And I think that's one reason those Tory party rules that they felt they had to come out of the traps very, very quickly with a much more rounded out package. But it's not a very rounded out package, as you rightly say, that much fabled growth plan. It is just a few paragraphs. And a lot of the paragraphs describe policies which aren't going to happen anytime soon because they are so politically difficult to enact planning reform and immigration to the catch the eye. But there are others. It's very difficult to get rid of some of the regulations that big businesses like because those regulations stymie their small arrivals. So it's not as if this growth plan is just a big red button that the government can press, a lever that it can pull, leading to instant results. No, I completely agree. And I think on the leadership election, to me, it was actually, it was too short at the MP stage. I mean, the MPs should have had a little longer to allow the candidates to actually set out their stalls better. And then the membership stage lasted forever. It was ridiculous. And I think that was the wrong way around. But I think, I mean, maybe they took a sort of sense of campaigning into government with them. And it's sometimes difficult to switch gears as a politician. You know, I think one of the lessons of some election campaigns, maybe Rishi's leadership campaign is like this. Sometimes you get politicians, they have their heads so much in government, they find it difficult to adjust to campaigning. And sometimes you have people who are really good at campaigning, and then they find it difficult to readjust as they go back into government. So it might be that, and it might be that they were you know, just a little carried away ideologically. But you know, all the, <laughs> all the stuff you just said about the uncertainty of the cost of the energy bailout and things like that, I completely agree with that. But to me, that actually just says that's why you need to be more cautious about taking decisions that have lasting consequences for fiscal policy, like the taxes you collect every single year. I must say, Nick, I wanted to ask you a bit more about your excellent column and your own kind of relationship with the Conservative Party. You are very much a, a student of politics. You've written extensively in the past about Joe Chamberlain, who was, of course, leader of the opposition back in the Edwardian era your columns in general often have a kind of historic twist. 
You joined the Conservative Party back in 1997. I was actually a, a lobby reporter at the time, a parliamentary correspondent for the FT. And I remember what a heady time it was. And that must have taken a real act of will for a young man <laughs> to turn up at the sort of Conservative Party office, which yeah. must have been a sort of bombed out husk of a place after that 179 seat majority, which Blair scored. Just tell us about why you made that decision and how you feel now. Are we in 1997 territory, potentially? Yeah, I think I joked in the paper that it was a deeply subversive thing for a teenager <laughs> to do. It certainly was at that time. I mean, I joined the Tory party because of the values. I mean, it's certainly kind of been accused of being a glory hunter or a power seeker in any way because we were so far from government at that point. But I joined because, you know, the values are timeless and I believe in them very strongly. And those values obviously aren't just about tax rates and <laughs> decisions on interest rates and things like that. Although sometimes you might be forgiven for thinking that if you listen to a lot of political uh, <laughs> commentary. I mean, the, the, really, the, you know, the Tory values that I think are really important are about identity and belonging and, and commitment and community and that kind of thing. And so even, when, even, even at those points where the party feels completely and utterly screwed, it should still have an appeal to people who feel those things. And you know, fortunately, we were able to bounce back. I talked about 1997 because I think the predicament the party is in right now is incredibly dangerous. I actually first started working for the Conservative Party and the Conservative Research Department in the early 2000s. That really felt like the lowest of low ebbs. But I don't remember us ever being at 20 points in the opinion polls even then. The Conservative core vote, I think, like the really core vote is probably just maybe late 20s, just below 30%. And at the moment, the Tory party is polling way below even that. And, you know, I've had conversations with Tory MPs over the last week or so, and they're starting to say things like, well, 1997, defeat of that kind of magnitude at the next election looks like the good end of the spectrum. Wow. And they're saying things like, well, the Tory party doesn't have a God-given right to exist. And they're worrying about Canadian-style wipeouts you know the canadian conservatives were basically wiped out mm. in a landslide election so there's a real sense of i wouldn't even call it panic just deep deep concern among those mps isn't there some hyperbole there though starmer he's not corbyn fair enough but he's not blair is he i mean i was there as a political reporter when blair emerged onto the national stage and traveled with him around the country when he was in opposition a shadow Home Secretary and so on. And he was literally electrifying rooms full of swing voters. I don't see Keir Starmer electrifying rooms full of voters at all. Starmer strikes me as more Kinnock than Blair. Yeah, I mean, the two are certainly not comparable. I think you're completely right about that. And Blair had that kind of rock star appeal. It's funny to think of it now, but, you know, back in the <laughs> late 90s, early 2000s, he really did. Yeah, You know, he had political magic. And the circumstances were different. It's a cliche to say the Tories left them a golden economic inheritance. But actually, they did. They did. Blair had that amazing stability of that period that had been left by the policies of the Tories, but also the state of the world economy at that time. And actually, it's kind of connected to what we're going through now, in that the West really benefited from the stages of development that the Chinese and some of the Asian economies 
had where interest rates could stay low and we hadn't yet felt some of the consequences of some of the manufacturing shift eastward and so on. But now we really are feeling that. We have a really horribly unbalanced economy, a horribly unbalanced labor market with lots of people forced into low-skilled, low-paid work. And actually, Chinese demand, Asian demand for natural resources and that kind of thing are one of the drivers now of inflation rates that are going to affect all of us over here. So yeah, it's completely different in that Starmer and Blair and the economic context is very different. But there is no getting away from the fact that the Tories are polling at 20 points, which is crazy. I think that's right, Nick. Mervyn King called the noughties the nice decade. And that's an acronym, the non-inflationary, constantly expanding decade. And Blairism certainly benefited not just from the economic inheritance from Ken Clark's time in the Treasury, but also from global trends. And it strikes me that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, they're pretty unlucky because the government that was in power, whenever interest rates started to go up, retreating from those ultra low levels for reasons that we've discussed last week, it was like a sort of terribly unlucky game of pass the parcel. <laughs> they're the ones holding the package wrapped in newspaper full of stuff that you wouldn't want anywhere near the kitchen, <laughs> so to speak. And so in some senses, I think Truss has been slightly unfortunate. She has, and Quatting hat, they have provoked the instability, the catalyst, in my view, the spark, rather than fueling this interest rate trend because it's been going for a long time. But that means that any positive headlines amidst roller coaster sterling and blood curdling interventions from the Bank of England that do worry people rightly, and I think journalists are right to highlight them, any good news gets completely lost in the weeds. For instance, the fact that the IMF, who haven't been doing the UK many favours lately, have just released forecasts saying that in 2022 at least, Britain's going to be the fastest growing economy in the G7. And that was before any sign of a growth plan from Kwasi Kwarteng that those forecasts were made. So it strikes me that the government is caught in a bit of a doom loop at the moment. I think, you know, one of the reasons why we're talking about recovery like that for this year, it's partly about the sort of bounce back from the closures and the restrictions and so on of COVID. At one point, we were expecting growth to be much higher than the kinds of numbers we're talking about. But the problem is the financial instability that we're talking about now has huge consequences for the real economy. Yeah, Nick, these really are pretty tumultuous times. I don't think it's fair to blame Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng for everything by any means. But, you know, politics is very much a contact sport. And the reality is that a lot of Tory backbenchers are now talking about putting letters in. They are now talking about another leadership contest soon as crazy as that seems. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio!
Climbing aboard the rocket this week is former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lord Norman Lamont, who ran the Treasury from 1990 to 1993. Having grown up in the Shetlands, where his father was the island's surgeon, Lord Lamont of Lerwick was a university contemporary of fellow Tory grandees Michael Howard, Kenneth Clark, the late Leon Britton and John Gummer, sometimes collectively known as the Cambridge Mafia. Having been Chancellor when Britain crashed out of the European exchange rate mechanism in 1992, a currency system he argued against us joining, Lamont's extremely well-versed when it comes to financial crises. I joined Norman Lamont in the House of Lords, and I started by asking him if he agrees. It's been a pretty rocky start for the Trust government. It has been a very rocky start for the government. I just hope that they can recover. I think a certain reset is necessary. The fiscal plan at the end of the month will be a big event. I think the OBR has become one of the most pivotal organisations in the country. And it will be very important that the fiscal plan is credible and it doesn't fudge the future. What do you say to Labour's claim that the Tories have crashed the economy? Clearly, the mini-budget happened, and then slightly before then, and since, there's been a lot of turbulence on financial markets. But this is a long-term trend, isn't it, this rise in interest rates, this rise in mortgage rates? I don't think the government have crashed the economy. The government delivered a statement which was not well received by the markets. But the fundamental move up in interest rates was already happening and would have happened anyway. And what happened was that it was accelerated by the announcement. But of course, markets have since calmed down a bit. I mean, I think the rise in rates will probably continue worldwide. But I don't think the focus will be exclusively on Britain. I think things will calm down. I think the government have got the chance to re-examine the proposals they put forward, represent them, and try to evolve a clearer, more coherent strategy. Wasn't it a bit tin-eared to lower the top rate of tax for only 2% of earners at a time when the cost of living crisis is getting worse and worse? Whatever you think of moving to 40p in the pound in principle, wasn't the timing just a little bit unfortunate? Yes, I think it was not politically very sophisticated or very wise. I don't actually think economically 45 to 40 is that significant. It might have paid for itself, but I don't think there's any guarantee of that. And I think to put that forward at a time when the pressure on everybody as a result of the cost of living crisis, I think was highly risky politically. Kwasi Kwarteng is quite a sophisticated person, financially literate. Why do you think he made such a politically cack-handed move? Well, I can't really answer that question. You'd have to ask him. But I think Kwasi and the Prime Minister are very convinced Laffer-type conservatives, very strongly in favour of lower taxes, and were determined to do it all in one bang. That's not always how politics works. Sometimes you have to move step by step. And I think particularly at a time of retrenchment, a time of financial problem for many people, you have to pay attention to the political wrapping. You have to do things in a way that is acceptable to the majority of people. You mentioned there the economist Art Laffer of the Laffer curve, the idea that if you lower tax rates, you actually get more revenue. So they pay for themselves 
Do you generally buy that type of economics? Are you with Liz Truss? Are you with Quasi Quateng when they're growing for growth, moving towards supply side policies rather than demand management? Well, I believe in low taxation as strongly as any conservative. The reasons I believe in low taxation are one, I think it's a good thing that people should keep their own money. You know, taxation might be called theft or confiscation. I don't think the state has a natural right to the property or the income of anybody. I think taxes should be low, consistent with government providing whatever services are necessary law and order, defense of the realm, protection of the weakest. But I'm also in favor of low taxes because I think in the long run, people will allocate resources better than the state will allocate resources. They will do things more efficiently with their own money. So in that sense, I do believe that low taxes do encourage efficiency and a more competitive economy. But we live in the 21st century where Governments provide a lot of services. People depend upon them, education, health, law and order, and so on. And a certain level of taxation is necessary. I don't buy the argument that tax cuts always pay for themselves. That would be absurd. If that were the case, tax rates would be 1%. (laughs) And we would never need to talk or argue about But if high tax tax rates weren't damaging, they'd be 99%. Yeah, that's exactly It depends precisely where you are on the Laffer curve, precise point. It depends whether the rate of tax is confiscatory. Plainly, when Dennis Healy had a taxation rate combined with a surcharge on unearned income of, I think it was 98%, plainly reducing 98% to 60% would encourage a lot of people to come back to this country. It depends on whether the people who are subject to your taxation are mobile, have other options. I think Laffer-type effects, so-called, are more likely to be applicable to high earners, because high earners probably have more options. Mm. But all I'm saying is I don't buy the argument that in all circumstances, cutting a tax will generate more revenue. But you know, I think there are a number of taxes where reductions probably might yield more revenue. I think the rates at which stamp duty are levied mm. is probably too high. I'm not sure that I thought the government did the right thing in just altering the thresholds. I think it would have been better to have altered the rate. Mm. And that might have produced a Laffer-style effect. So I do believe in low taxes. I think it's a myth that all tax cuts pay for themselves. And when people talk about tax cuts produce growth, I think one has to distinguish between the short term, there's the so-called sugar rush, the demand effect of a tax cut. Obviously, if you put a lot of money in people's pockets, they'll rush out and spend it. But what will be the long-term effect of that? I think improving the efficiency of the economy really is a matter of are our tax rates competitive with other countries? Are they sensible taxes that are easily levied? They're not just a question of the immediate demand effect. And when the government talks about upping our rate of growth to 2.5%, I think what they're talking about is the sustainable long-term underlying rate of growth, sometimes higher, sometimes Mm. lower, but an average of 2.5%. And, you know, I don't think that is done by creating a sugar rush or a consumer boom. It is done by actually having 
an efficient, rational, flat tax system. And the hard yards of proper supply-side reform. Rid of the regulations that big businesses sometimes like because they stymie their smaller competitors. Things like planning, difficult political issues to unpick in order to get higher growth. Yes, these are the real drivers of growth. I mean, apart from entrepreneurship. I mean, let's not be too determinist about this. It isn't open to governments to determine precisely the rate of growth of an economy. I mean, in one sense, you might say setting a target of 2.5% growth rate is not really a conservative ideal. Um, you it's can't, a sort of command economy. You can't, you can't imagine Milton Friedman or Hayek saying that the economy should grow at a particular rate. There's an element in growth of serendipity. Has someone who lives in a particular country or a particular town started a great business, produced a great invention, has a particular population, a particular talent for doing this or that? These things are not always determined by governments, thank goodness. The problem is not the rate of growth. The problem is the rate of growth of productivity or of GDP per capita. You can increase GDP simply by increasing immigration, but that is not improving necessarily the welfare of the country. The welfare of the population will only be increased if you increase GDP per capita. Or you can borrow more and spend it and generate more transactions and generate more GDP in that way. A specific question, do you think the government should uprate benefits by the rate of inflation by 9.9%? Well, I think that's going to be a political decision. And I think it's difficult not to mm. when the decision I think has been made that they're going to uprate pensions. Mm. If you're going to uprate pensions, it's difficult to see why specific benefits for the very poorest people should not be up by the same amount. On the other hand, economically, obviously, many people who are employed are settling for less than the rate of five, inflation, five, five, five and a half percent. With inflation percent. at nine or ten. No. So there is an economic argument, but I think it's politically very difficult for the government. You were no stranger to political infighting, obviously. Those I've are... never seen any political <laughs> infighting. You've heard about lots, but you've never actually seen any. <laughs> We've had four Conservative Prime Ministers now in six years. I was at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham speaking to many senior party members who were secretly, but not very secretly, talking about a new leadership contest. What adjective would you use to describe your party if they embarked now on a new search for another leader? Farcical, I think, would be the adjective I would apply to it. I am concerned about the rapidity with which prime ministers have come and gone. We like to think we're a politically stable country. We contrast ourselves with Italy, which is always having different governments. Well, we've had one government for a few years, but we've had the same government with different prime ministers. Mm -hmm. And this is equally destabilizing, particularly if they come along and say they're changing everything. One person is in favor of one approach to Europe. Another comes along and has a different approach to Europe. One is in favor of leveling up. Another is in favor of pursuing growth at all costs. These are different approaches. And yet, the electorate voted for a conservative government on a conservative platform. But what I'm really concerned about is that I think 
it's become too easy for members of parliament to get rid of prime ministers between elections. 15% of the parliamentary yes. party. And I it's think quite a low bar. It's a very low bar. And I think it is very difficult, given that almost all prime ministers run through a period of mm. unpopularity mid-term, have very difficult decisions to make, have sometimes to do things that backbenchers won't like. I think you should not be so easily able... What do you think to, the bar should be, Norman? Well, I don't know what the bar should be. I'm tempted to say that the rule should... No, well, I'm tempted to say you shouldn't be allowed to remove a sitting prime minister in between general elections where you are in government. And if the prime minister has won a general election... Mm he or she should only be removed by a vote in the House of Commons, yes. not a vote in the Conservative Party. I think it's become very difficult to be Prime Minister, and I don't think it'd be a good thing if we go on having different Prime Ministers every two years. That could happen, couldn't it? The 1922 Committee yeah. could change the rules yes. in and of itself. Yes, but I, I'm not just talking about the present situation. I think this trend, which seems to be in the Conservative Party rather than in the Labour Party, mm. but it's a regrettable one, and I think... Britain's reputation for stability is taking something of a knock. I'm a supporter of Brexit, but I think the world outside doesn't really understand Brexit. And they look at Brexit and then they look at the rows we've had, they look at the changes of leadership and they think, what's happened to Britain? There's something odd happening. And I think we need to calm down, get our house in order and show to the world that we are a stable country and a rational country. How did you feel when Boris Johnson was basically removed by his own party? Well, I certainly wasn't pressing for him to be removed. And whenever I was asked, I tried my best to defend him. And I think Boris certainly has a great number of achievements to his credit. I think he will go down as historically important. But having said all that, I think... Things weren't right in Downing Street and Boris was largely to blame for his own downfall. What do you want to see happen now, Norman? What's your advice to Conservative backbenchers in terms of how they conduct themselves for the good of your party and, more importantly, the country? Well, I think they've got to calm down, got to grin and bear it, got to realise we've got a difficult time ahead and they've got to basically support the government. But I think the government has got to reset. I think part of the problem that we have was caused by the government's own rhetoric, which spilled over from the leadership election. All this talk about we reject orthodoxy, attacking the Treasury, the OBR. Rejecting the orthodoxy, what do markets look at? They look at, is a country behaving in a conventional way? A lot of conservatives are criticising the markets, which is a rather silly thing to do, it's sort of describing it as some sort of international clique or an elite group of people. But that's not what markets are at all. And the markets, I think, were puzzled by what was happening in Britain, alarmed, not just by the tax cuts. I don't think it was the tax cuts that precipitated the fall in market, but it was the tax cuts plus the uncertain arithmetic that surrounded the energy price guarantee. Because the energy price guarantee, I mean, its pricing is extremely uncertain. It could be tens of billions, or it could be, as you pointed out, hundreds of billions. But I think that really unsettled 
the market when it was put in the context of the things that then came along afterwards with the so-called tax reductions, which were largely restoring the status quo. But it was the combination of the total package plus the rhetoric. The rhetoric, I think, was deeply damaging because people thought these people do not believe in fiscal discipline at all. And fiscal discipline is not the enemy of growth. Fiscal discipline is essential for growth. It provides stability. There's no growth without stability. And even Margaret Thatcher, who obviously enacted in the end some pretty game-changing policies, she worked her way in, didn't she? She had the debates within government between the wets and the dryers that you'll remember. Yes, she was controversial to the end and to this day, but she did build gradually her radicalism. Yes. I mean, when Mrs Thatcher came to power, in 1979, there was no talk of privatization. Privatization was something that happened later that people thought of. There was no firm undertaking, I think, other than the return of things like British Aerospace that had been nationalized by the Labour government. But there was no talk of privatizing utilities, electricity, gas, all that sort of thing. So it grew gradually, incrementally. Final question. Are we in a 1992, potentially, Black Wednesday moment? (laughs) Well, I don't think Black Wednesday was such a disaster. Let me say, I have a different, it will not surprise you, but as the person who was in the cockpit, I have a different view, inevitably, uh, I would, wouldn't I, of 1992. I think a lot of people know that I, in some ways was quite relieved when we left the ERM. It wasn't true I sang in my bath quite in the way that it was reported, but it was true that I didn't regard it as a total disaster. And it did lead to a period of quite fast growth. But what people forget, and what I would argue, is that the success of coming out of the ERM was also dependent on having been in the ERM in the first place. Because what people completely forget is we had a dramatic reduction in inflation. Mm. Inflation went from 11% to 2%. We've got 10% inflation today. Is it going to be down to 2% in 18 months? I don't believe it. But, you know, the medicine then in 92 worked. It meant our inflation was lower than Germany. But we had a long period of quite fast growth. Norm Lamont, an honour to speak to you here on Planet Normal. Well, I always love listening to Norman. He's full of wisdom and experience. And and I thought it was a very honest account of where we are. And in particular, I think this point about stability being the foundation upon which you can reform the economy and try to secure the conditions in which we have growth. And as he said, growth on a per capita basis would be helpful rather than growth overall, that those are the things that are really important. And actually, looking back to the experience of Mrs. Thatcher, those reforms throughout the 80s were carefully planned. They were stage by stage. They were always mindful of the politics. They were always mindful of the need for economic stability. And I think that is where we've gone wrong. They were mindful of the politics until they weren't. And she did the poll tax. And then she was, there's no way to put a finer point on this, out on her But if you think back to the early 80s, and again, I remember this well, there were all the cabinet debates and disputes between the wets and the dries. Even within that Cambridge Mafia, Norman was very much against 
the likes of John Gummer, Norman and Michael Howard as more sort of Thatcherite ideological ministers on the one hand, Ken Clark and John Gummer on the other hand. I wouldn't say she took the whole country with her. Of course she didn't. She remains controversial to this day, her legacy. But it was, as you say, Nick, and as Norman Lamont pointed out, it was step by step. She achieved her radicalism gradually in order to make it stick. And it strikes me that Liz Truss, who's sometimes compared to Margaret Thatcher with her sort of pussy bow blouses and blue dresses and so on, she seems to have missed out the early and mid 80s and gone straight for the poll tax in terms of doing something which has caught the political and media class very much unawares, has riled the financial markets, led to a sort of sense of instability and even unrest. And she may live to regret it. What do you think of these reports? And they're not just reports, really. I've had plenty of conversations. I'm sure you have too, that there are now backbenchers who are thinking of giving Graham Brady their letters of no confidence. Well, those reports are there because that is exactly what members of Parliament are talking about doing. Now, that doesn't mean anything is about to happen. They're just conversations at this stage. The conversations are taking place, I think, not because the Conservative Party has become addicted to regicide, as sometimes said, but because with Boris there was a particular set of circumstances where People felt that the dishonesty, to be frank, was too much and that he couldn't behave in the way that he had. And in this case, you know, it seemed mad to be talking about getting rid of a leader quite so quickly. But, you know, lots of people say, well, the only thing madder than changing is not changing and watching the Tory party being driven off a cliff. And so they're talking about what on earth do they do? Do they just get rid of her? Do they do that? Quickly, do they do it a little later when you know, the phrase I've heard is she needs to be seen to fail Crikey. and not enough people have seen that yet? And what do they do about things like the process? Some of them would like to see a kind of Michael Howard style coronation, which is what happened in 2003 after Ian Duncan Smith was removed as leader. So who is the equivalent of Michael Howard now? Would it be a sort of David Davis coming in as a kind of caretaker, you know, grey beard, safe pair of hands for a while? I think there's probably about 150 Tory MPs who think they can be <laughs> calling them. Now, there's no shortage of people who think that they might be the saviour. And I think actually this is part of the problem. There's loads of people who think they could do it, but there's also no real agreement in the party about who such a saviour might be. So if there were to be a change, then it's quite likely there would be another contest. Crikey. Politics, Nick, it's very much a contact sport. I think for a lot of the public looking on, as Norman Lamont said, a new Tory leadership contest would be farcical. Now on to our listener emails. Please keep them coming, your wonderful and often very moving messages. We love reading them and learn so much from you, our Planet Normal listeners. There are still emails coming in responding to Alison's column, not turning the heating on until November. How's that going? A Planet Normal listener called Alison writes, Given that Eon have put my direct debit up to £500 a month, my heating will not be going on at all. It's the blanket, extra jumper and the German Shepherd hot water bottle for us. Ian writes, as an experiment, we're going to try and make it through the whole winter with nothing but our single open fire. 
As a London borough resident, I'm sure this will delight Sadiq Khan, which is an encouraging and motivational thought for us too. This is from Mike. Hello, co-pilots. I went to the bank this morning to ask for half a million nicker to buy a nice little house. They rather impertinently asked me for details of the house and of my repayment plans. When I told them I couldn't give them any details until the 23rd of November, they turned me down flat. Maybe I should have gone for advice to the Chancellor Kwasi Kwateng. Best wishes, Mike. And this one's from Nigel. I love it when people say they grew up with no central heating. Poor dears. I grew up with no heating in rural Norfolk, walking to school in hand-me-down from neighbour shorts. Never remember feeling cold even in the snowdrifts. My tip for feeling warm in winter? Early morning swim in the Baltic, where I now live. After that, everything feels warm for the rest of the day. Our resident Planet Normal Poet Laureate Bob has weighed in with yet more masterful verse. Dear Planet Normal, says Bob, with the cost of living rising and Halloween approaching, here's something to help children prepare for trick or treat this year. Thanks again to Planet Normal, the podcast we can all turn to in these scary times. So this is from Bob. How to scare the grown-ups. Don't bother with Halloween costumes of the usual type we see. Dress up as a giant gas bill or a demand from HMRC. You don't even have to wear scary garb. You can spook us by what you say. Tell men they're beginning to lose their hair or women they're turning grey. Say that our pension pot's too small or you think we look overweight. There's a massive jump in inflation or a hike in the mortgage rate. For those are the things that scare us and truly give us a fright. Tell us we're facing redundancy and you'll keep us awake at night. But if all of that fails to move us, and you're feeling rather bold, just remind us we'll never be young again. And say we look really old. Well, Bob, it's a fantastic poem, but you've got to cheer up, mate. We need a more upbeat one. Get scribbling. Here's an email on a subject I never thought I'd be talking about. And for those of you who don't know what I look like, I am as bold as a cute, bolder than my granddad was. But here goes. This is from Rachel. Dear Liam, A while ago, you mentioned on Planet Normal that you never use shampoo on your lustrous locks. I thought I'd give it a go and can report, after several weeks' experiment, that my flyaway tresses are doing well and are no more uncontrollable than they have been all my life. I shall no longer bother with shampoo. Plain water is just fine. I wonder if you have any more health and beauty tips to share. For instance, some people recommend using olive or coconut oil instead of toothpaste. Best wishes to all on Planet Normal from Rachel. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's Nick's turn. I think it's obviously Rachel. That was quite ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Email us with mugwinner in the subject heading at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with their postal address. They will soon get their mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find the podcast so the Planet Normal family can grow. And here's a reminder that Planet Normal Live is back for its second instalment and you're invited. Next week on Wednesday, October the 19th, there will be a live recording of Planet Normal at the historic IET in central London. Alice and I will be talking with the renowned author and journalist Lionel Shriver and life peer Lord David Frost, both speaking to your co-pilots in person. Expect straight talking and reasoned debate with a broad dash of planet normal humour. So do sign up. There are tickets still available. Lots of you complained last time that the tickets sold out too quickly. So we booked a bigger venue. So do come on down and meet the planet normal co-pilots, Lionel Shriver, Lord Frost 
and most importantly, your fellow Planet Normal citizens. The last event back in May was fantastic fun, with many of us chatting away over a drink and nibbles long after the recording actually finished. So please do come and meet us and the rest of the Planet Normal family. Tickets are £30 for Telegraph subscribers and you can find the link to where you can get your tickets via the Telegraph website in the show notes to this episode. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett and our editor Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.